0: Well, uh, good morning to you, uh, Christ Central. Thank you to uh, Mr. Morgan for that really uh, moving story of grace. It's always incredible to hear how God's love and grace comes into our lives at different stages, different ways, but God's love is so very real, and He changes lives. So uh, this morning, we're going to continue this series on the book of 1 John. If you have your Bibles on your phone, it'll also be projected overhead. We're going to ask this question, what is love? John's answer, God is love. Let's look at these five verses together. So starting in 1 John, chapter 4, uh, verses 9 and 10. I'll begin there. I'll read it for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verses 15 and 16. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe The love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. One more verse, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. The author of this book, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, there's a gospel entitled John there's a final book of the Bible entitled Revelation, all the same author here, Apostle John. John, in particular, was known to be the author, the writer who spoke about love most. Uh, he was like the apostle of love. He frequently actually described himself in the gospel, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he designated himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so he had a friend, a fellow disciple by the name of Peter. This used to drive him crazy into jealousy. That John was sitting there saying that he's a disciple whom Jesus loved. John talked about love constantly. This letter is proof. So you would figure if there's anybody who would have insight or like brilliant takes into love, it must be John. I mean, it should be John. But John doesn't dare. Let me just notice in our passage what we're going to study here. John does not dare to give you his own thoughts about love. He says, even your thoughts and my thoughts about love don't come close. It's not higher deep enough to the reality of the love of God. So... Two revelations from this passage. First is, God is love, which is repeated twice. And second, God showed his love. God manifested his love. God had to show it, otherwise we wouldn't know it. Two revelations on love. God is love. Second, God showed it, or we wouldn't actually know it. First... God is love. A lot to unpack here, but I'll just focus in. From the start, to reveal that God, by nature, it's not just an attribute or kind of a side quality or once in a while, that God is love. That means If we try to define love, if we try to imagine what love is, when human beings try to piece all their evidences and experiences and emotions about love to figure out what love is, you know, as soon as we conceptualize or define love, we actually lessen it than what it is. We always are going to fall short. Why? Because God is love. I mean, these old camps and retreat, I grew up in a church, we used to play this telephone game, and a guy or a gal who uh, originally gives a message, they say it, and then there's a long line of people who have to pass along that message. There's some obstacles and hurdles in getting that message right, but the original message could not be more different by the end. By the end of the telephone game, that message was all mumbled, jarbled, confused, distorted, sometimes altogether lost. And so it is with love. God is love. And the further away we move away from God, the more detached we are from God. We don't even know God. Love itself... Gets all confused and jarbled and maybe even altogether lost. You know, when we study the Holy Scriptures, which reveals God, (laughs) we should pay attention to what it says, of course. But you should also pay attention to what it does not say. And we should pay attention to how it says what it says. We ought to be really diligent, careful, conscientious students of the Word of God because the Word of God actually gets you to know God. I don't know if any other book would be more important than that. And so if the Holy Bible is the holy revelation of God, pay attention to what it says, what it does not say, and how it says it. Here's how John said it. God is love. That is very different. Very different. I mean, drastically different from love is God. Is it not? God is love. That's how it's stated. That's the revelation. It's opposed to reversing that order that love is God. See, this order is actually crucial. It's very crucial. It reveals the most ancient and eternal reality about God. You actually have to hold on to this order, God is love, to hold on to love. Because love itself did not precede God. Love did not pre-exist God. Love as a concept or idea or power in the universe did not bring God and all of creation into being. Love itself would not even exist without God. For God is love. God is love. But how easily love itself can be turned into a God. You see, because the further and further we move away from God, the more detached we are from Him. When you and I don't really know God and experience God, and we're walking with God and God's life abides in us, we're not doing what the Bible describes about Christian life. It is guaranteed that you're going to take something like love and elevate it into a God of its own. Where God is love, but instead we're going to say, no, I'd be God. And love has always been one of the greatest all-time rivals and idols, the true and living God. A couple examples of this. People really may feel, they may not say it out loud, I've been looking for love. I'm just looking for someone who I can really love all my life. I'm looking for love all my life. Or the reverse side of that coin is, I don't feel my life is worth living. If I'm not so loved. You see, here's an example how love has become so, so important, is it not? But I want you to realize, my friends, this morning, looking for love all your life or feeling like your life is not worth living if you're not loved is only a symptom. You're only scratching the surface. Did you know that? It's only a symptom that you're actually looking and aching for God, Because God created and made you in love for his own love. God is love, not love itself is God. Here's one more example. When love becomes God to you, when love becomes the end-all be-all to you, actually all your loves go wrong. I'm sorry to say that. It's haunting, but it's proven to be true throughout all of human history. And it started right here in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve thought that they were so smart and wise in their own minds, and they disobeyed God. God told them to do something, and then they reasoned and figured, no, I think it's okay to eat this fruit. And they listened to Satan embodied in a serpent. They said, no, 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 no. I think what I say, what I think, I think what human culture and human reason and human autonomy and human education and our science and technology, I think what we think ultimately has the highest authority. I think we can figure things out. I think we can be fine. That's how all of sin began and the fall erupted. And as soon as man and woman fell away from a loving relationship with their maker, God, God comes down and pronounces judgments. There's consequences to our sin. First, he talks to the serpent. He actually condemns the serpent. He judges Satan. But then in verse 16, here's what he says to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. How Prophetic. How prophetic. God pronounces as a result of sin. This is a description of what happens when you fall away from God. It's not a prescription. It's a description. Women will try to. The word for desire is overrule. You want to master control and manage your husbands. Or in any love relationship, you want to keep that man in order. Or maybe reform him or shape him into the image that you want. Your desire will be that, but... He shall rule over you. Do you know what this word means, rule over you? He will take advantage of you. He will abuse you. He won't love and lead you, but he'll do it in a sinful way. God describes that the moment we sinned and fell away from a loving relationship with God, there will be a sinful over-desire to control and rule over your husband's. And then men are going to come back and sinfully come back with an abuse of love. My friends, when you fall out of a loving relationship with God, all your other love relationships go go sideways. And this is by no means by God saying, well, this is the way I want it to be. This is the way. Go ahead and do it. But no, women by design are different from men. And then he turns around to men and say, you are going to be so frustrated. You're going to toil and labor. You're going to overwork. You're going to be overruled. And you're just going to sweat to the dust at work. God is love. But when we turn love into a God, when love becomes God, Even our love relationships don't work right. Here's the second revelation God is love. Second, how did God manifest or show his love? (laughs) Did God show it? How did he show it? And if he didn't show it, according to John, he says it over and over, we wouldn't even know what it is. Better than a movie, better than a Twitter statement, better than a post. God came down in person in Jesus Christ to actually do a show and tell on love. He did a show and tell on love. Three characteristics of the love of God that has been manifested. First, love takes initiative. Love takes initiative. Again, keep in mind, we would not know what love is because by definition, God is love. And if God didn't show you what his love is like, we would never know what it is. How did God show his love? It takes initiative. It takes initiative. He acts first. I mean, maybe one of the most important questions, spiritual questions, here it is, is do you have to look right, act right, smell right, do right? Do you have to play the part before God notices you and loves you? Is there a more important question to ask if you're spiritually interested at all? How do you approach God? How do you get into a loving relationship from God? Do you have to act the part first? Must you be right first for God to love you? Apostle John, 1 John 4, 10 and 19. We did not love God first, but God loved us first. We did not love God first, but God loved us first. You see, his love initiates. A good doctor, former doctor who became a pastor, Mart Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary, he observes this about the love of God. God's love is not determined by us. It is in spite of us. Is this not the essence of the whole gospel? There is no explanation of salvation except the love of God Caused, caused by nothing, save this self-generating love of his, not called forth by us, but emanating from him. Is this not the whole essence of the gospel? That in God, love is self-generating. That's just who he is. I have no explanation beyond that. It's just self-generation. It wells up and overflows like an everlasting fountain. And it gets just poured out upon anyone who is thirsty and wants to to come and drink. Love takes initiative. You see, God showed his love by making the first move. Love assumes and takes the risks up front. Oh, you know, in that ice cold, tense, awkward where your stomach is turning in a relationship because it's so awkward now, you're not quite sure where you stand or maybe you've been so hurt. You guys know that, right? You know, it's risky, right? For the person who acts first, it's really risky for the person who makes the first phone call, reaches out and says, Hey, would you, would you like to talk or meet over coffee? Love takes those risks. Love is not lazy or passive, but proactive. Love does not wait to be treated or respected or adored or loved or adored. Right. Love initiates, even before you have loving feelings. This is the love of God. Rabbi Zechariah tells the story of his brother who went to their dad. He said, Dad, you know, I'd like to get married. And so as was Indian custom, it was actually up to the dad to figure out who he was going to marry. And so the dad sent his sister all over Bombay to collect data and information and pictures of potential brides. And one day the father chose because he liked a particular gal. And he began correspondence with the gal. Mind you, again, this has nothing to do with his son. His son has made no contact with this gal. And then the father decides, well, I'm going to arrange an engagement. And then they started planning wedding ceremonies, invited a thousand guests. And all of this was being planned without his own son or his potential bride ever having met once. Ravi, of course, the brother, asked his brother, what will you do if you come off the plane and you see the girl and honestly you say, good grief. What will you do then? And the brother replied, Love is as much a question of the will as it is of the emotion, and if you will to love somebody, you can. Love is as much a question of the will as it is of the emotion, and if you will to love somebody, you can. My friend, do you think God fell in love with you? Do you think God chose Israel according to the book of Deuteronomy because they were the biggest and baddest and strongest and most intelligent and responsive and just the most attractive around? Do you know how God describes his love over and over and over and over again for his beloved bride? Do you know how he describes it? He just says, There was nothing in you. This was just self-generated. I just love you. And I'm gonna keep on loving you. And I'm never gonna stop. It takes initiative. It takes initiative. Let me apply this home just a little bit. It will always be true, my friends. That you can learn and will to love somebody that you presently do not. If you initiate an act and actually go through motions of love, service, meeting needs, hospitality, giving gifts, ask Pastor Jimmy Hahn, ask myself, ask any Christian who's ever done this in their lives. We will all tell you I felt nothing at first, but after a while, when I initiated an act and took risk of loving this person, lo and behold, my heart started to catch up. You know the stranger? You know the newcomer? You know the person who feels awkward at your small group or any church event? Do you know at our church, which is getting larger, do you know that people who feel out of place, what the love of God would do? The love of God initiates an acts. You know, Jesus even taught. Didn't he teach something like this? Before you go to worship, before you go to the altar, before you do anything religious, if in your conscience you know that you are not right with somebody because you offended and hurt them, or that person offended and hurt you, what should you do? Jesus taught if you're a Christian, you're the one that should always act first. You're the one that should act first. Oh, I know there's a lot of contextualization and details to be played out there. I'm not saying it can always happen overnight and everything's going to work out well. But why does Jesus teach that Christian people should be first in ways that the world is last? Why does Jesus dare to teach like that? Why does he almost flip the whole law upside down? He says, you're not going far enough. You shouldn't just be kind to your enemies. You should pray for them and love them. Why does Jesus say that Christians should always be first in reconciliation? Here's why. Because God Himself did precisely that. Love takes initiative. Love takes initiative. That is the love of God that was manifest. Here's the second characteristic love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. Are we not blessed by stories of grace, in particular today by David Morgan? When he says, I hit the jackpot, I hit the lottery, I was adopted by parents who were just that good and loving on me and their family name actually protected me from racism that happens all over the world, that's incredible. If I asked you, can you tell me Of anyone who has loved you, can you tell me how someone has loved you? I guarantee I'm going to hear a story about sacrifice. You're going to tell me how someone gave up something, gave up so much of themselves to be so good to you. Uh, Yesterday, several leaders and members of our church were so lucky to go to a conference of how the gospel transforms disability. It was entitled Indispensable, and I was sitting towards the back, couldn't stay for the whole time, but I saw a video testimony of a family, the Hubert family, who have three sons, all diagnosed with autism, all three. And the father and the mom are sitting there talking about how simple but unique it was that when they ended up at the church which hosted this conference that after their son clogged the toilet or maybe their sons would come over and cause a lot of mess or maybe they might even break things at your house. They were so struck that they got invited again. That they kept being invited over to their house even though it would cost the host something. Love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. How exactly did God show you his love? Otherwise, we wouldn't know what love is? Oh, verses 9 and 10, 10 in particular. By sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins. To be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, taken from a Greek word. I know that's a big word, a loaded word. What does that mean? It means it has punishment for our sins in view. Propitiation is that which endures or exhausts the punishment due unto your sin. Now, how is propitiation for our sins a manifestation of the love of God? How does punishment, because of holiness, go together with The love of God. Well, I'll tell you, the Bible doesn't just say God is love. The Bible also has this simple but stunning statement, God is holy. In Isaiah, it actually says God is holy, holy, holy like three times. And so everything about God, which you must understand if you want to know anything about God, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to know what God is like, you cannot just say God is love. He's just loving. No, you must put it together with the rest of his character. Who he is in essence. God is holy. So everything about God is colored by both. In other words, God's love is a holy love. And holy means not what you think. It's an otherworldly, pure and absolute and perfect love. So to save sinful people... God sent Jesus' Son to do something so costly, bloody, life-giving, painful, even deadly, to take upon the punishment of our sins. In propitiation, holiness came down upon His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, to propitiate, cover, exhaust, endure the punishment we deserve from our sins, while the holy justice came crashing down upon Jesus, so that in Jesus, self-generating, overflowing love would be poured out for you, for anyone who would need it. One of my favorite movies is so old, uh, Shawshank Redemption, you would never guess it was written by that horror author, Stephen King. And the main character is an Andy Dufresne who's been framed for a double murder and he enters into a a prison that runs like a military, like Nazi boot camp with with a prison warden which is caricatured of someone who quotes the Bible, is very religious, thumps the Bible but has no love, has no gospel. Andy Dufresne, being so clever, so bright, former accountant, finds a way to escape finds a way to escape, and I'm reminded, watching it recently again, how these recent criminals up in New York probably copied, actually, the movie. He finds a pipe, the sewage pipe. He breaks it open, and the narrator, which is Morgan Freeman, he has like that perfect voice, talks about how Andy Dufresne crawled through 500 yards of beep foulness that he cannot even imagine. It was literally the toilet. It was really the feces. It was all of that foulness flowing out of the prison cell. 500 yards, five football fields. Almost like half a mile. An innocent man who was framed crawled through all that crap and he made it out. That really does not really come close, but analogies at some point, we've got to make them, right? But they fall short. You know, Jesus crawled and crawled through something like that. Jesus went through something like that. An innocent man framed, condemned to die. But he actually didn't make it out. He never made it out. You know why he didn't make it out? He didn't just crawl through all that foulness and filth. He drank it down. He talks about a cup, a cup that he has to drink, a cup of wrath, a cup of holy punishment for all our sins. And Jesus drank it down in full all the way in. And Jesus didn't make it out so that you and I can get out. He suffered and died so that sinners can live through him. Now, here in Western culture, when I open up the Bible or talk to you about love, God loves you, I don't know if it makes any debt. And here's why. Because here in Western culture, we have very few issues or objections against God as love. Most Westerners, like us, assume and expect God should love you. So when you hear God loves you so much, you're like, what's new? Of course he should. Whereas in Eastern cultures, more traditional cultures, they have very few issues or objections against God is holy, God is just, God is angry, and God is going to bring down all of his justice on genocide, atrocities, disease, racism, abuse. Most other cultures in the world have no issues with God is holy. They're actually surprised by God is love. Our culture have no issues with God is love, and we're offended by God is holy. This is why the Holy Bible is not from a human culture. It's not a human product. Because the Bible always challenges every culture at different points to bring about a whole new kingdom of God culture. But back to our issues here in the West. If you have a hard time stomaching or believing that God is so holy that he will punish all sin and every sin one day, that God will rain down justice and make everything so wrong so right, If you reject that God punishes sin, then I just ask you to consider, how then do you describe the love of God? How do you explain the love of God? Meaning, how has God loved you, precisely you? Did it cost them anything? Anything? Was it difficult for him in any way to love you? Oh, don't get me started. You ask me, Harold, how has your wife loved you? How has your mom loved you? How has your, your friends for over 30, 40 years loved on you? How has Christ Central loved you? I will have no trouble telling you in great detail with much affection and at times trying to hold back tears because I can tell you story after story and story of sacrifices that have been made to love someone like me. Now, now, listen, my friend, listen. If you do not believe that God is so holy that he could send people to hell, if you do not believe that God will punish all sin and atrocities with perfect righteousness someday, Can I ask you again, how do you describe the love of God for you? Did your God ever have to go through hell and back to love you? Was it sacrificial for him in any way? Was there any bloodletting? Was there any agony? Was there humiliation to it? Was it appalling? Was it dreadful? Did he crawl through anything to get you out? See, my friend, what I'm trying to ask you is, to what extent has God loved you? This is why love is so bland and boring for you. And isn't it ironic that in our attempts to make God more loving, we make him so less loving? God is love. Indeed, God is love. He will always be love, but God is also holy. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, the holiness and the love of God meet. Where God is just and he also becomes a justifier. And in propitiation, holy justice came running down upon Jesus Christ. So that you and I could be set free and loved of God forever. And I don't know how people can believe that God is loving. In a world filled with suffering. Suffering. I mean, you can only stay so comfortable and safe and healthy for so long. You can only do that for a little while. But it's soon, something's going to happen because it's called the wages and the curse and the fall of sin. How how do you believe God is so loving to you when you suffer? In a world full of suffering, unless God sent Jesus Christ his son to suffer for you. Can you explain to me, please, on what basis? You know, it's one thing to wish that things are true. You know, like fairy tales? It's one thing I just wish is true. I hope it's true. I hope it's true. I know God is loving. I just think God is loving. And you ask, why is God loving? I I just wish and hope it's true. But it's completely another thing because it's been shown and proven to be true. Unless Jesus Christ was sent to put death to death, in his own death at the cross, how in the world do you believe that God is still loving at a funeral? Grandparents lost, moms and fathers lost, and we come and attend and we watch and we mourn and we grieve with you. All we can do is walk with you through it, but we do know of someone who can walk with you through it all because love is sacrificial. Love takes initiative. Number two, love is sacrificial. No religion comes close to this kind of revelation in Jesus Christ. Here's third and we close. Love is a personal signature. Love is a personal signature. The fullest and most beautiful demonstration of love that the world has ever seen or can ever see is in Jesus Christ. You know the apostle of love who talks about love all the time. Love this, love that, love one another. If you don't love God, you don't love one another. If you don't love one another, you don't really love God. Love is all over the place. But I want you to notice every time he mentions love, 1 John 3, 16, 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10 and 19, every time he mentions love, do you know that John can't help himself? He has to also mention Jesus Christ. There's actually one topic or name or person that John talks about more about than love, and it's Jesus Christ. (laughs) In verses 15 and 16, he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ, only whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ is the Son of God. God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe. How do you come to know and to believe the love that God is for us? God is love. It's whoever abides in love, abides in God. It's whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ. You see, here is the gospel, the make or break message of Christianity. The objective facts come together with subjective experiences beliefs and emotions, doctrines and doxology, information and transformation. They're never opposed. And anything that bypasses or forgets or undermines Jesus Christ is not just heretical, it's actually downright harmful. It's downright harmful because here's how Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter three towards the end. He says, I want you together with all the saints to know the height and the depth and the length and the width of the fullness of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Love has a name to it. The fullness of love, the most beautiful demonstration of love. And do you really want to experience the love of God? John can't help himself. He says you can only find it in Jesus. I'm just going to close with this question. Well, why can't God just love all people? Why can't people just find the love of God apart from the personal name of Jesus Christ? Why can't God just spread that all around? And that's such a great question. That's such a common question. It's such a deep question. And I'd like to tell you as a pastor, I think theoretically it's possible. I think it'd be possible if the greatest good and goal in all of the world was about populating heaven and depopulating hell. Do you know what I mean by that? Maybe God could love and save all people if God's greatest good and goal in all of life was to increase the number of people who go to heaven and decrease the number of people who go to hell. But what if I told you the greatest good and goal in all of human life is actually not about you or me? What if there's a greater good? What if God has a greater mission? And in the Gospel of John, God's greater good, God's greatest goal in all of history and into eternity is that Jesus Christ, His Son, would be glorified in salvation and judgment over all. God is so committed to the greatest good that Jesus Christ, who was sent to be the propitiation for our sins, would receive proper credit, would get all the glory in salvation and in his judgment overall. You see, for Jesus Christ to save any of you or any of me, for Jesus Christ to come down and give up his life so that he can give you a whole new life and forgive and cover all your sins, You're going to have to call upon the name of Jesus. You're going to have to sign up through him. He's going to have to sign up for your life with his own blood. He's going to have to put a signature on your soul. And it's going to be visible to God for the rest of your life. That you belong to him. You are his. His and he is yours. Jesus Christ gave up his life and all of his sacrificial love. Not so that you can turn around and say, Well, there's a lot of other ways you can be saved. No, God makes sure that for anyone who is saved, Christ Jesus would be glorified and adored and worshiped forever and ever and ever. This is the greatest goal that God is committed to. And you and I can glorify Jesus for his saving love right now by calling upon the name of Jesus. Jesus to forgive and cover all your sin, to endure the holy justice that is due upon your sin. He took your place. You can glorify and begin to worship him right now for his saving love. Or my friend, I'm afraid to tell you the day will come. The day will surely come where it will be seen and proven that Jesus is God and you will glorify him still for his holy judgment and his reckoning upon you for your life. But come what may, Jesus will be glorified above all in his love and in his holiness for all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. This day, And ask God as we unpacked, heard, learned some things, I pray that by the power of your spirit you would give lives and change lives. Give new life and change lives in Jesus as you bring us to him. To worship and glorify him who is both loving and holy. One and the same into eternity. Which is why he demands and calls all of my life, all of my worship and love for him. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.